Welcome to FPC Meridian's Sermon Podcast. Today, Dr. Rhett Payne continues his series in the Book of Esther. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of His Word. Now let's begin. Very appropriate song. Thank you, choir, for that. Uh, From Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and really a lesson on the providence of God. As believers, we believe in the providence of God. We believe that God is at work even when we don't think He's at work. Even when we can't see what he is doing or trust what he's doing, we believe that God is at work overruling in our lives. And sometimes it's very painful. And all those different pairs in Ecclesiastes 3 speaks to that, that it's not always joyful, but God is on the throne. And we need to remember that, especially as we study this book today, uh, the book of Esther, the providence of God on display. We're in part 6. Please turn to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7, we'll read the entire chapter. My sources include Mervyn Brenneman's New American Commentary on Esther, Ian DeGuid's Commentary on Esther from uh, the Reformed Expository Commentary, Derek Prime's Commentary on Esther, Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God, and a message by David Strain, The Big Reveal. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word as we read from Esther chapter 7, starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence and for your presence in your word. So please help us to understand this word. Give us grace that we might learn and profit from it ourselves in our walk with you. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr could have been a great name in American history, but he is not. He was elected to the U.S. Senate, and in 1800, he was a candidate for President of the United States. He lost. Thomas Jefferson won that election. Aaron Burr became Vice President. His future was bright, but then he was insulted by another famous political figure by the name of Alexander Hamilton. And Burr challenged him to a duel. On July the 11th, 1804, two great leaders of our country shot at one another, and Hamilton died. Burr got his revenge, but at a tremendous price. Revenge, we always hear, is sweet. Well, that may work in sports, but not really in life. The bitterness that followed makes you realize what God was trying to say to us To protect us when he said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. It's Romans 12, 19. God's commands are never because he wants to take away something good from us. His commands are always so that he can prevent you from suffering some unnecessary evil. Aaron Burr lost his popularity because of this duel. Because of his sweet revenge. Nobody wanted anything to do with Aaron Burr after he killed Alexander Hamilton. He lost all of his wealth. He lived in relative obscurity and poverty for 29 years, and he died alone in a hotel room in New York. Our nation lost two excellent leaders, and they also lost the opportunity to share their potential, all because of the desire for saving face. For revenge, a different attitude in Aaron Burr's heart could have changed history. The facts of history demonstrate that those who are compelled to get even tend up to be on the back end, way behind. Revenge usually backfires. Our text explains it pretty much the same way of what happened to Haman It's a pretty amazing story, a story filled with irony. Irony is when something contrary to what is expected happens. And we see that all the way through this story. One of the crazy things about Haman's downfall is how he is ultimately trapped in his own scheme. Haman appears to be a very shrewd guy. After all, he hated the Jews and... Being second in command, he felt like he could do something about this hatred for the Jews. He hated the Jews because for a thousand years, his people, the Amalekites, had hated the Jews and had tried unsuccessfully to wipe them out. But each time, each time the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, intervened and bailed the Jews out. Haman hated the Jews, but he hated one Jew more than all the other Jews. He hated Mordecai, the Jew, not only because Mordecai would not bow down to him, but he hated Mordecai because of the history that he had with their people, the Jews. So each of their forefathers had been kings, and Haman's forefather, Agag, 
had been humiliated by the Jews and then ultimately killed by Samuel. It's a great story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I hope you'll read it sometime. Not now, but sometime. So this would be Haman's chance to get back at the Jews in general, but Mordecai in particular. And even though Haman knew a lot of what was happening in the king's palace because he was second in command, there were quite a few things that Haman did not know. He did not know that Xerxes' queen, Esther, was a Jew. He did not know that she had been raised by his bitter enemy, Mordecai. He did not know that Mordecai had actually saved the king's life by uncovering a plot to assassinate the king. He did not know how closely the God of the Jews listened to the prayers of his people. So when Esther invited him to a private banquet with just herself and the king, Haman went home and he bragged about it. He bragged about his incredible wealth. He bragged about his ten sons and how the king had elevated him above everyone else in the empire. So Haman's plan was to ask the king to pass down a death sentence on Mordecai. He'd even set up this 75-foot pole erected so he could impale Mordecai on that pole. Mordecai, his hated enemy. But as we read in our story, God had other plans. So let's look today at three lessons in this narrative. And the first is this. The Queen's Revelation. The Queen's Revelation. As we've learned, Queen Esther had a deep, dark secret that she had been hiding this entire story. Her Jewishness. No one really knew that she was a Jewish lady. Which she had kept a secret ever since that we read about her coming into the king's harem in chapter 2. Now, think about that for a moment. She was Jewish, living in a foreign land. Everyone knew that Mordecai was a Jew because he was called Mordecai the Jew. But no one knew that Queen Esther was a Jew. Which means she had to hide a lot more than actually what she looked like. Experts believe that to keep this secret under wraps, to hide her nationality, she had to break just about every law in the book of Moses. She couldn't have observed the laws of ritual cleanliness. She couldn't have observed the laws concerning kosher food. She could not have observed special days or special times of thanksgiving and prayer. She could not have prayed to God publicly. She had completely blended in with the pagan culture that surrounded her. It was now time for Queen Esther to let it be known who she really was. Do you know how difficult it is to keep a secret? It's pretty difficult. And to maintain a secret for an indefinite period of time? I mean, some of you have family and friends who don't really know where you stand in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. Have you been maintaining a secret about your faith? Maybe you've never told those in your family where you stand in your relationship to God about this issue or that issue. I mean, there may be a whole lot of people that you work with that don't have any clue that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you love the word of God, that you believe and trust the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And look, I get it. It's the very reason, though, that Esther was hesitant to confront the king in the first place. After all, it's a lot easier to do what? It's a lot easier to keep up appearances and put off facing the consequences of the truth 
in a discussion. Which is why a lot of marriages limp along without a lot of resolution. Because in the long run, maintaining peace in the home is a lot easier and a lot safer than confronting the truth. And I understand that. Why? Because I'm married. If you don't overlook, out of a sense of unconditional love for one another, each other's faults, then your marriage is going to suffer. If, on the other hand, you make comments about every little thing that your spouse does that annoys you or offends you, even to the smallest point, you're going to strangle the life out of your marriage. There are a lot of things that need to be overlooked so that you can have peace. But peace that is afraid to confront a real issue in your marriage, that's not real peace. Esther knew that she could have no peace in her marriage or in her life if she didn't confront the king with what she knew. So after several days of prayer, I'm sure, Scripture doesn't say that, but it says fasting that she had requested on her behalf, she finally answers the king's question on, her, on his third request. So look with me in verse 2 of Esther chapter 7. As they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again, again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And so now, listen to verse 3 and 4. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Now, let's think about that first part. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, what's she saying? If you really love me, if you really love me, and the king obviously does love her. But notice how wise young Esther is. She doesn't immediately point the finger at Haman. She, she holds on for a while. She builds up to a crescendo. She wants to arouse the king's anger against the perpetrator before, before she's compelled to identify who the perpetrator is. The king's favorite. The one that he had entrusted all this authority. So, this is a completely surprising revelation that the queen has brought out into the open. So the king is actually wanting to know who this person is, and we're going to find that out in just a moment. But in verse 4, it says this. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. No such distress. And, and actually, that's an interesting verse there because this is the only time the word distress is used in the entire Old Testament. So Esther uses the term to indicate that what was happening was to the king's detriment and also against his best interest. Why? Because anything that shamed her shamed the king. So the first lesson, the queen's revelation. The second lesson, the king's explosion. At this point, Queen Esther had the king's attention. So he asked her in verse 5, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And in the vein of the prophet Nathan, if you know this story from King David's sin with Bathsheba, in the vein of the prophet Nathan rebuking King David, 
Queen Esther points her finger. It doesn't say she points her finger, but you've got to know, reading this story, she points her finger at the guy who's standing there. She points her finger and says, An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Now, I want you to put yourself in Haman's shoes for a moment and just think about what that felt like. You know, you're number two in command, and all of a sudden you had been pointed out as being a traitor to the king. If Haman was drinking wine, picture him spitting it out at this point when his name is called. And then verse 6. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Terrified, yes. Before the king and the queen, yes. But no regret of what? No no repentance. No sense of regret. Nothing like... I wish I hadn't done that. Basically, I'm sad I got caught. Ever felt that way? Verse 7, the king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. Now, you've got to think about this. What, what is going on? Why would the king not stay there and have it out with Haman? He's that upset. The king is that upset. Not so much about Haman, but more so about his own reputation. You know, this again is a narcissist king. Okay, you have to remember, he's narcissistic. He's all about himself. He's thinking now, oh, wait a minute, uh, this is an irrevocable law that I have approved from Haman. W- what am I going to do about this mess that I've allowed in my kingdom? I authorized it, he's thinking. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do now to not lose face among the populace? I have to punish Haman for promoting a decree that I approve personally. Never really knew who those certain people were. Because remember Haman, when he asked for this decree, he didn't name the people of the Jews. He just named there's a certain people. A certain people that does not submit to your laws. And so the king had a quandary. And while the king is out of the room, Haman, who knows without a doubt that his head is on the chopping block, throws himself at the mercy of the king, of the queen, in the hopes that she will spare his life. And I mean, he literally throws himself at the mercy of the queen. He falls on the couch where Queen Esther is reclining. And it appears, and again, we don't, we don't know what was going on there. She's reclining on the couch, which is normal protocol for the queen. And he throws herself on her on the couch. And verses 8 and 9 tell the story. As the king returned from the palace garden on the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? So you talk about irony. My first grade teacher was Mrs. Frances Rogers. You remember your first grade teacher, don't you? She was really a nice lady. She was, um, like all good teachers, knew how to keep order in her classroom. And this was in the days of corporal punishment. And she had a little ruler that she would take your hand and pull your hand back like this. And then pop it a few times. Okay, that was, that was the corporal punishment for first graders. Being the manipulative person that I am, even in first grade, I thought, hmm, I need to endear myself to Ms. Rogers. So I had my mom help me buy a little plastic ruler. 
so I could give it to Ms. Rogers. You know, you don't forget certain things like this. I, I still remember this. And I went up to her one day and I said, Ms. Rogers, here's a ruler for you to spank people with. Yeah, I think you're ahead of me on this story, aren't you? Yeah, I was always a little bit of a troublemaker. And so one day, Ms. Rogers called me up to the front and spanked me with my ruler. And I must have done something pretty bad because she broke it on me. She broke that little ruler that I had bought for her on my hand. Such irony. Listen to this quote. Ironically, the one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him was ultimately executed on a charge of falling down inappropriately before a Jew. Haman, he had it all figured out, didn't he? It didn't quite work out like he had planned. And that brings us to our third and final lesson, the principle of propitiation. Propitiation. Now, that's a big word, but if you want to know how to spell it, you can find it at the bottom in the verse of the week. I want you to spell it. I want you to get this right, because it's a very, very important word, a very important term in our study. The principle of propitiation. And it's found in verse 10. They put a bag over his face and took Haman and they impaled him. And next week we'll talk about what that means to be impaled. It says the king said impale him on the pole. The pole that Mordecai was supposed to be impaled on. That Haman had set up for Mordecai. And it's now going to be on him. Verse 10 says, so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. It's a very important statement there. The king's fury subsided. The death of Haman propitiated the wrath of King Xerxes. Do you you get that? Propitiation means satisfaction. If you know your Old Testament, then you know that the mercy seat was sprinkled with atoning blood on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16.14. Representing that the righteous sentence of the law had been executed, changing a judgment seat into a mercy seat. And that's why it was called the mercy seat. In other words, propitiation in our context is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ... By which he appeases the wrath of God and conciliates him who would otherwise be offended by our sin and would demand that we pay the penalty for our sin. And it's not so much the the satisfying of a vengeful God, but rather it is the satisfying of the righteousness of our holy God. Making it possible for him to show mercy without compromising his righteousness or his justice. Propitiation stands at the very heart of the gospel. You need to know this term. You need to know this term because Jesus 
propitiated himself on the cross. Jesus Christ, our Savior, identifies with his people and in so doing stands with us under the sentence of death because all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's the sentence that we stand under. So Jesus stands in solidarity with us and in identifying with us in our sinful state, he delivers us. How? Propitiation. In our story, it is the enemy of God's people who ultimately dies to satisfy wrath. And who is that? Obviously, it's Haman. Yet in the gospel, think about this, it is not the enemy who dies to satisfy wrath, but in the gospel, it is God himself who bears the penalty and pays the price. You know, I love to read on on Twitter some of John Piper's answers to questions. And there was a question a couple of weeks ago, who killed Jesus? How would you answer that? Who killed Jesus? Piper's answer is right on target. Usually is. The Father killed Jesus. God the Father killed Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is 1 John 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, verse 10. Let's read it out loud together. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Unlike our story where Haman is made the propitiatory scapegoat, the wonder of the gospel is that God propitiates himself in Christ for us. Our sins have been paid in full. It's not automatic. We still have to appropriate that. We still have to come in repentance and faith and trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. If you've never done that, this is a wonderful day to do that. To come to Jesus Christ and ask Him for forgiveness of your sins and to turn in repentance away from those sins. We never see anything like that spoken about Haman. It's a sad and tragic story of a man who was consumed by hate and anger and all he wanted was justice. And he got it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. None of us in this room cry out, we want justice. We pray for mercy. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. Father, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for propitiating yourself. For taking our sins and becoming sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Lord, we have so very little to do with our salvation that we are in awe of you. And we glory in your gospel. And today I pray that you would draw your people into praise and worship of you. As we come to your altar, humbly 
reminding ourselves we are only here by the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. Through Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen.